Welcome to my novel, False Alarm, a free serialized audiobook read by me, the author, Heather Stallings. Music by Mark Bruce. This book contains content best suited for adults. Please visit my website, heatherstallings.com. Chapter 14 Where are you going in that dress? Virginia asked Kate. It was 3.30, New Year's Eve afternoon. They were all seated at the kitchen table, Barry, Gus, Camille, and Virginia, eating Barry's turkey trechazzini for an early dinner. Virginia and Barry were soon headed to the airport to catch a plane for their Las Vegas wedding. Her mother claimed to never let food pass her lips after 6 p.m., Barry had discovered Kate's turkey in the fridge. So far, no one had discovered the salmon in the back of her car. Kate, on edge, grabbed a plate with more gusto than needed. Today was the last day for the bonus race, and Georgie Porche had invited all the sports financial boys to the New Year's Eve party, even though Kate had done the urination work with Pinto, so she was going to have to fight it out with him there. Everyone at her firm, and probably everyone at Nestor's agency, knew it would come down to this party. It promised to be a pissing match more memorable than all the company's ski trips combined. I'm going to the game, Kate said. My boss is singing the national anthem and I can't miss it. She didn't mention the make-or-break party at Skanky's. Under no circumstances would she go home to change, so she planned to wear a leather jacket over the dress for the game. A brilliant day-into-evening ensemble. So tricky to go from ball game to nightclub. She wondered whether Pedro had just been toying with her when he'd said to bring the contract. Stadium attire must have changed since I've been to a football game, Virginia said. She was wearing a halter top with feather tassels over her belly. Mommy, Gus said, I can't eat with the fly. Kate looked to where Gus was pointing. A fat fly buzzed around the platter of turkey tetrazzini. He's okay, Kate said, picking up the plate again. Flies are our friends. But I don't like him, Gus said, his lower lip quivering. Kate knew that he wouldn't eat until the fly was removed from the room. As she scanned the room for a newspaper, her heart pounded. In a rush of strength and dexterity, not unlike a mother lifting a car off the trapped foot of her child, Kate reached for the fly and snapped her hand closed around it. Gus stared at her wide-eyed. She was hyperventilating. Is there anything else I can do for you? She asked, looking around the room wildly. Don't kill him. He covered his eyes. Gus was at her heels as she went to the kitchen window with the fly in her hand. She opened the window and tossed it out into the even more dangerous street. Mommy! When did you stop wearing a bra? Asked Virginia, braless herself. Kate ignored her spooning some of Barry's casserole onto her plate. Pedro had mentioned lots of food at Skanky's, and there would be food at the game, but she was starved. On her second date with Sandy, he'd told her that she was the first woman he'd ever taken to dinner who'd cleaned her plate, and this alarmed her. So what if women nibbled before dates to suppress their dainty appetites, just as men jacked off? Was she now really thinking of it as a date? Your mother doesn't need a bra, Barry said. But I need support hose, Virginia said, wagging her fork. After the honeymoon, I'm having my varicose veins stripped. I won't allow it, 
Barry said, spearing a chunk of turkey. He left the room with his fork to pack up. It could be worse, Kate thought. Fake tam foreplay and a selfless high regard. Virginia peeked at Kate from across the table, around the box of potato buds. Kate knew that her mother suspected. Gus fled the room. You know, Kate said, struck with an urge. I'm not cut out for this job. She expected a pep talk, and not you, Kate McCabe. Look at what you've accomplished. You're a goddamn CPA or CFA, for crying out loud. But her mother looked at her, her hair in soft wisps around her heart-shaped face. Her makeup faded, a dash of honest freckles rarely seen. It was her mother's wedding day, and Kate had never seen her look so beautiful. But she looked at Kate as if her daughter were off to perform some vigilante act that she was too late to stop. I used to feel that way about my job at Planned Parenthood, Virginia said, twisting the stem of her wine glass. The stories were too sad. I was so tired going out every night. Why'd you do it then? Kate asked. Why were you gone? They both knew the real question. Maybe all of Kate's insecurity was due to her feeling that her mother had never liked her enough. She had liked men better. I needed to, she said. Your mother subscribes to the trickle-down theory. What's good for the mother will be good for the daughter, too. In the fog of Kate's dread, something about this rang true. Kate thought of how her children picked up on her moods. If she were knotted up inside, they felt it, even when she was smiling. It was really okay for her to work. Not the seven days of her dark fantasies, but something separate and away from them. If nothing else, her mother went on, I wanted to teach you that you can be happy. Kate wouldn't call herself happy exactly, but it seemed that her mother might finally be happy, even if she wouldn't admit it, and this came as a relief. Sometimes I feel I can't keep it together, Kate said. Her mother hugged her, her soft cheek pressed against Kate's, not judging, not scolding, just holding her. Learn from me, her mother said. Make sure you're not trading one set of problems for another. After Virginia and Barry had left for the airport, Kate waited anxiously at home for Consuelo so she could head to the game. The phone rang. She felt her heart quicken in her chest. It was the spacey feeling she got when she drank a glass of wine in the kitchen and then ran helter-skelter up the stairs to attend to a hysterical Camille. Please don't be Consuelo, she thought. She'd built no contingencies into her schedule. Wearing one metallic suede shoe, Kate picked up her cell. Hello, she answered tersely, shoving her foot into the other shoe. Kate, thank God you're there. Peter, she asked. He sounded drunk. Peter sighed wetly. It sounded as if his lips were pressed against his phone. I've done something horrible, he said. Kate visualized Peter in army fatigues. What, she asked. Where are you? Will you come down here to the office? Please, Kate. Gus appeared in the office doorway wearing only his Scooby-Doo underpants. Kate gasped. Gus's normally Casper-colored skin was even whiter, so stark that he looked deathly ill or recently electrocuted. Then her body relaxed as she recognized the smell. He'd taken Camille's tube of diaper rash ointment, a chalk-colored substance the consistency of peanut butter, but much harder to clean, and smeared it all over his skin, head to toe. Mommy? Did you eat any? Kate asked Gus. The necessary bullet point question. Gus shook his head. Yuck. 
Kate jabbed her index finger in the direction of his bedroom, and he retreated there, grinning. Peter, what did you do? Kate blurted into the phone. Tell me what you did or I won't come. She needed a washcloth to scrub Gus's skin. The phone went dead. Kate quickly dialed the office. The phone rang and rang. She dialed Peter's home phone, and it rang and rang. It was four o'clock. Where is Consuelo? Kate considered calling the police. But what would she say? Peter was a notorious prankster, the man who'd shepherded barn animals up the building's service elevator and into Kingsley's office on April Fool's Day, just for a laugh. The man who claimed he had a brain virus. The brain virus Kate had failed to report. Still, something told her that she better get down there. When Consuelo breezed through the door at 4.30, a half hour late, Kate shot out of the house to her car. It seemed that everyone was heading out to Candlestick. Scarlet red and metallic gold jerseys streamed into the streets, ignoring the red lights. A big game on New Year's Eve and downtown looked evacuated. The city had the lawless feeling of a disaster. Kate had seen footage of the 89 earthquake, where people had raided shops and restaurants, wandering the downtown in the beach of broken glass. Here she was standing in the heart of the financial district, Battery and Market, braless in a dress that would fit into a greeting card bag without the sporty crossover leather jacket that she'd left in the kitchen with Barry's Tetrazzini. She felt unbalanced and strangely puffed up, a sick feeling as if she'd been eating junk food all day before a big meal. Somewhere in the distance a siren wailed, a fire engine. Kate thought of Sandy poised at the helm, so dedicated to miss the big game, she knew it was a sacrifice for him. In the office, Kate found Peter slumped over his desk. An almost empty bottle of vodka lay on its side, a few drops making puddles on the glass top. Peter raised his head a few inches and lapped at them with his scalloped tongue. I knew you'd come, he said, turning his red face to her. His eyes were runny and bloodshot. You've always believed in me, he said. Her feet were planted in the doorway. She glanced back toward the lobby door. What have you done? She asked. Tell me whatever it is and make it quick. I'm running late. Peter hefted himself upright. It's Nestor. He's a liar. He pounded the glass desktop with a fist. He told Shelby that the bird has stage fright and now Shelby might pull him at the last minute. He double-crossed the bird. Bird's such a prince. Where's Randy? She asked. Bloodshot eyes looking right at her, he said. Kate, I think I killed him. I killed Nestor. Kate felt her lip curl. Her eyes came to rest on his phone. 501 was the mayday call to the security guard downstairs. But she hadn't seen anyone. The guard was probably at the game. Everyone was going to the game, and she wasn't going to make it. Where, she asked. Where, louder. How, was also on her lips but it was too terrible to ask. Peter bit his lip and flicked the bottle with his index finger, spinning it. It stopped, pointing at Kate. He's probably dead. Peter, please, Kate said. She stepped in his office and grabbed the bottle by the neck, thinking she might need it for fingerprints. Peter let his head drop to his desk. He's at his office, he said, then peeked up at her. You get that contract signed yet? Kate backed up and ran down the hall and slapped the elevator button. Too slow. She took the stairs down the 19 flights, 
pounding the metal steps in her metallic heels. She could call 911 and report him, but he'd deny everything or disappear. Maybe he was making it all up. But she couldn't take a chance. She'd seen him dragged away kicking on the 11 o'clock news. Kingsley Gartmore is a prince of a guy. Maybe Randy Nestor wasn't dead, but dying. Or Peter might well have accidentally killed him. She had a hard time thinking that he'd done it intentionally. But there she went, protecting him again. Maybe there was something called a brain virus. Or he could have a brain tumor, not yet discovered, influencing his actions. In her car, she tossed the vodka bottle, sure to have Peter's fingerprints, on the passenger seat and called Sausalito information for Randy's home phone number. Calendar pages were fluttering out of windows and down into the street. A last day of the year ritual. Market Street was deserted. Randy and Pamela Nestor was the only listing. No one will be home anyway, she thought as the phone rang and rang. Kate relaxed her grip on the phone. Of course, she thought. Peter had made the whole thing up. She had to get to the game. She wasn't going to lose the bonus by rescuing everyone. The office wife again. There would be no reward for cleaning the toilets. Kate tried Nestor's main office but got the night voicemail. He'd closed early for the game, just like her firm. His direct office line rolled over as well. Was he alone in his office, in need of help? She should have told someone about that Christmas party incident where the marketing guy had left the men's restroom with a bloody face. Now Peter had confessed to probably killing someone, and she was off to the game. No, she couldn't go straight there. Randy could be dying somewhere. As she took Lombard Street, she dialed 911. I need to report a possible homicide, she said, and gave the address of Nestor's office, not mentioning Peter. The female operator took down the information. What's your name, dear, she asked. Kate hesitated, feeling the hot pressure behind her eyes, the kind words. At the fork in the freeway, south to Candlestick Park or north to Randy's building, she cranked the wheel to the right and drove north toward the Golden Gate. Kate McCabe, she said, I'll meet you there. Kate hung up. What was she going to tell the police? Peter assaulting Randy Nestor had been a public relations problem. Peter killing Nestor? Kingsley needed to know. The firm should have seen it coming. Kate should have seen it coming. Kingsley would be at the park, warming up, gathering wind. Kate dialed his cell. The ringing was fuzzy as she clattered across the Golden Gate Bridge. Hello, Kingsley said. His voice was rougher than normal from over-practicing, but he was definitely at the park. She could hear a distinct sound, only a tidal wave roar of the crowd. I'm having a problem here, Kate said. Tell him quick, the phone's going. I'm having a problem too, he said. I'm still having trouble with the high notes. The rocket's red glare, he falsettoed. You won't believe what just happened to me. I was invited into the locker room with all the guys. We, it smelled bad. Nervous sweat, like they'd already played the game. Listen to me, Kate yelled, but it was apparent that he couldn't hear her. I had the death of common sense in my hand for a lucky charm, Kingsley chattered on. Pedro shook my hand and said, Hey, that's a good book. How wonderful is that, Kate? He read it. All this time, I didn't think the athletes were reading. 
Pedro's just delightful, that Latin lover. Live in la vida loca, he sang. Then, oh ho, say can you see. Peter told me he killed Nestor, Kate hollered. I don't know if I believe it, but he told me that Randy Nestor is probably dead. Randy's passed away? Kingsley's voice faded in and out. I'm so sorry to hear that. I heard he had a trick heart. How's Pamela taking it? No, Kate said. Can you hear me? Peter told me he might have killed him. I'm meeting the police at Nestor's office. What do I tell them? Talk about a public relations disaster, she thought. Kate? Kate? You're coming in and out. Hey, they're all waiting for me in the locker room. I've got to go shake hands with the color guard or something. Send flowers. Lots of them. Except for those awful lilies that make me sneeze. You know the ones. We'll set up a found day. The phone went dead. Kate hit end, then redial. A computer-generated voice said, The cellular phone customer is unavailable. No, said Kate, and threw the phone at the passenger seat. Kate's heart beat even faster when she saw Nestor's blue glass building in the late afternoon sun. She pulled into the parking lot where a police car was high-centered on Nestor's beloved bed of daffodils, droning APBs, lights flashing. Out of her car, the air smelled of salt off the bay and something rancid leaking out of the police car. Kate ran to the door, crunching pebbles with her metallic heels. She was grubby from her hike down 19 flights of stairs, a smudge already on her dress. Now she was sweating again, this time worried about what she might find. The elevator wasn't working, so she took the stairs to the third floor, which did not look as pristine without the view of San Francisco, now blocked with silk screen shades. It was too quiet. The big screen TV was a blank, stupid face. The gargantuan plants shadowed the lobby with their brawny arms. She heard talking down the hall, so she pushed through the Jurassic Park doors and made her way through the dark lobby to Nestor's office. Two cops were hunched over the sprawling marble desk. The plush shag carpet tripped her. She looked up and saw that they'd pull guns on her. She put up her hands, her heart skipping. I'm Kate McCabe, she stuttered on her own name. The one who called. She heard another police car pull up outside the siren chirping. There's nothing here, the bigger cop said, looking at his younger partner, who had shaggy blonde hair. They weren't dropping their guns. They both looked really annoyed, missing the game, with a playoff berth at stake no less. And they were missing it because of her. She stopped breathing, her chest empty, her hands still up. Peter had derailed her, she felt a tingle in her head, a curious mix of wilting relief and raging anger. She would beat Peter with his Hall of Fame bat. He'd set her up. Had the bonus race become this bloodthirsty, what would he stop at? And for that matter, what would she? Certainly he'd be fired. But then again, possibly not. Maybe the mink in the bag was all that mattered. She dropped her hands and looked at her watch. Kingsley would be singing in 20 minutes. No way could she get to Candlestick. Whatever, she just needed to make it to Skanky's in time to sign Pedro before J.P. sweet-talked him. She wished she'd been more straightforward with Pedro about how she needed the contract to help her family financially. He'd probably thought it didn't matter who signed him, since they were all at the same firm. The big cop answered his cell phone, his face red. 
Really? He said into the phone, looking at Kate. He hung up. Sorry about that, Kate said, backing out of the office. I guess it was all a mistake. Or a fake report, the shaggy blonde said. Have you been drinking, Miss McCabe? The big cop asked. No, of course not. She stopped. What do you mean, a fake report? We can arrest you for that, the shaggy blonde said, taking a step closer. Arrest me? Hold it right there, his buddy said. We're taking you to the station for questioning. You can't do that, Kate said. On what grounds? Open container on your passenger seat. The evidence. That's not mine. She waved her arm dramatically, whacking the blonde officer in the arm. He grabbed her wrist. And for resisting arrest. In the waiting room of the Sausalito police station, Kate sat on a folding chair. At least she'd passed the breathalyzer test, and there was a big screen turned on to the upcoming game and a Mr. Coffee nearby. A handful of clerks sat at computers, typing or filling out reports. Kate watched the TV. A speck of a person emerged onto the blue grass field. Oh my God, it was Kingsley. Kate stood so fast that she accidentally sloshed her cup of bad coffee over her dress, scalding her leg. But Kingsley had trotted out to the center of the stadium, and she couldn't run to the restroom. The bravery, Kate thought. Go, Kingsley, she said. The fingerprinting clerk looked up. The sports financial logo was on the scoreboard, and for an instant she thought it had been a fantastic idea. That is, until the camera zoomed in on his stoop profile, the rolled shoulders and vulture head, live. The steamy locker room had taken its toll. His comb-over was going limp, plastered to his head as if he'd actually showered in the locker room, and his red ascot drooped. But the crowd loved him. Thank you, thank you, he said, without the mic. Kate could read his lips, warming up. Oh, say, can you see, he shouted into nothingness. The camera panned the bay, which had turned silver with hard white caps. The band fired up with a drum roll. The stadium hushed, and Kingsley's face filled the screen. Kate held her breath. Then his voice was as silver as the water, emptying out of the stadium into the Pelican Bay and beyond. Kate closed her eyes. The roughness was gone. For an instant, it was one unplugged voice in a concrete church. All week, Jennifer had been pressing lemons for him to sip, and he'd gargled a salt concoction every afternoon. It had paid off. Kate opened her eyes and watched Kingsley's face. It was as if he were all alone in the stadium, his eyes shut. Kate remembered him saying that he couldn't even watch himself in the mirror or he'd get tongue-tied. But he hit the high notes perfectly, and then it was over and the crowd went crazy. He bowed his head and let his jellied arms fall in front of him. Kate saw him raise his head again, and she knew he was desperately searching for Mrs. Gartmore, whose approval he needed. Kate knew he was tired of this game. He had done his job, seen through the eyes of Harry Connick Jr. and the inside of the locker rooms, and what he really wanted was for Mrs. Gartmore to step out of the crowd with their car keys dangling from her hand and take him home. Kingsley took another bow. Kate clapped, annoying the fingerprinting clerk who shook his head. She knew she should take it easy or they might lock her up. But Kingsley's voice had been so layered with emotion, so complex. What had she expected? That the bottom-line guy would do a no-frills job? 
that there wouldn't be something else that he felt passionately about? If she'd looked long enough, would she have seen it? Had she assumed for too long that Sandy only wanted to be a lawyer? It was 9.30 p.m. when they finally released her. The cops were in a good mood. The Niners had beaten the Packers 22-6. to Pedro Aragus had scored two touchdowns. She would have to deal with some follow-up questions later, but she had no time to think about that now. Traffic was bad into the city. Kate called Consuelo from her car to check on the kids. Fortunately, the ball had dropped in Times Square and Gus had gone to bed. Kate took the 4th Street exit, the last turnoff for San Francisco before the Bay Bridge, and drove toward the Mission District. It was odd not to check in with Sandy. New Year's Eve had always been a special night for them. In recent years at home with the kids, a midnight toast of champagne as the world reveled outside their bedroom window. He seemed inaccessible to her now, a different chapter in his life. At 19th Street, traffic slowed to a crawl. Shiny streamers and Happy New Year signs covered doorways. A scrappy crowd was spilling outside of a sports bar where a bartender was selling food through an open window. Kate did a double take. Was that a man in a cape? But when she looked again, he was gone. At a stop sign, a fire truck pulled up next to her. She felt a twinge of guilt, regret, that her future was here. Excuse me, Kate called out, craning her neck to see the guy in the window. Are you from the Mission Firehouse, she asked. The fireman in the passenger seat looked down at her. Nope, Fifth and Bryant. The bear claws are better here. Kate declined the donut he offered, thanking him. It was almost 10 o'clock when she found a tight parking spot in an alley a block from Skanky's in the mission's dangerous but now fashionable strip. Kate flipped down her mirror. God, how had this happened? Pedro would take one look at her and run. Quickly, she attempted to unwrap her hair with a brush and spit-shine her face. Her torn pantyhose looked like they'd been attacked by a cat. She wiggled them off and tossed them in the back seat. The black stockings... Maybe her ace in the hole, gone. She could hear the spicy Mambo King's music as she climbed out of the car, the air punched up with jalapenos, Tabasco, and tobacco. Sandy would be getting off work in a few hours. Kate wondered whether he would go straight home to see the children asleep and note the mounting pile of bills on the kitchen table, or whether he'd go out drinking with the other firemen and watch the game highlights he'd missed. He now had Mondays off while Kate worked downtown. A Friday night wasn't going to be a Friday night anymore. Every day would feel the same. Skanky's concrete facade was tucked San Francisco-style between a laundromat and a Goodwill store. The cathedral windows glowed with orange lanterns. Red and gold lights crisscrossed in the street. At the front door, Kate stepped in line behind a dozen people in assorted attire, tuxedos, jeans with sports coats, fur minis, and have-to-be-fake eyelashes. The sloppy bouncer on a stool was checking IDs against the list. Behind him in a window, a sign read, Private Party. Kate grabbed the folded contract. It was her sanctioned reason for being there, the one Sandy had rubber-stamped, Go Kate. One by one, the chip-tooth bouncer, discerning under his multiple chins, let someone in or turned someone away. 
At the front of the line, she stared down the bouncer's discriminating, raisin eyes. She told him her name, and he looked her up and down. His eyes zeroed in on the coffee stain on her dress. Gotcha here, he said, running a blunt finger down the list. He looked at her again, then at his clipboard. It's tight in there. My fire limit's 200, about 20 minutes. But no one was leaving, and she knew that she did not look attractive enough to be let in, even if she was on the list. He did have a point. She turned toward the street for someone to help her. She could call Pedro on his cell, but she'd look pathetic, rejected by the bouncer? Her eyes landed on Peter the Red's lime-green Dodge Dart with its dog-is-my-co-pilot bumper sticker parked across the street. She had to get in now. Peter was going to sign Pedro if J.P. hadn't gotten to him first. She thought again how she should have made it more clear to Pedro. She and her colleagues would not share the booty like Valet Parker's. She wasn't even ruling out ex-receptionist-turned-salesman James getting to him first. There were a lot of bicycles chained to the parking meters out front. Twenty minutes outside, small-talking the big bouncer, how about those niners, and her nerve would be gone, curled up to rest like a cat on a warm engine. How had 200 people gotten there so fast? By helicopter? She concluded that most of them hadn't even gone to the game. They'd had time to drink. They'd had time to primp, wash their hands, remove the toilet paper stuck to the bottom of their shoes. Kate stooped and yanked off a wad, a souvenir from the police bathroom. What do you have to do to get let in? asked a leggy blonde behind Kate. The bouncer leered. We like a lively party, he said, as if he were actually invited. Wear a bikini, or maybe a cape. A cape? Had her therapist crashed the party, even if he wasn't really her therapist? She then spotted Pedro's red Corvette on the parking strip, still with Lonnie's auto's license plate. Kate took a deep breath and turned to the bouncer. Excuse me, she said, but I have a date with Pedro, she pointed at the car. He's expecting me inside, and he's going to be very upset. She shouted it in her best imitation of Consuelo hurling her boyfriend's entire wardrobe onto the arterial in front of her house. She wished she had Consuelo's jalapeno hutzpah, but she was getting there, a dozen piranhas in her fist. The bouncer looked at the car and then at Kate. He'd broken into a sweat. I'm sorry, miss, he said. Forgive me. He took a step back wielding the magic wand of his pen and pushed the door open for her. Hi, it's Heather. I'm back. Thanks for listening. Kate barely made it to that party, and next week we'll see what happens with Pedro. That's the final chapter. Everyone's headed to the party at Skanky's. So Kate's got her hands full with staff problems. She really probably shouldn't go shopping with the receptionist because she is the boss, But the receptionists we hired at the sports firm tended to be very friendly, outgoing people who were too easy to be friends with. The receptionist is the gateway for the clients. We once had a receptionist who was putting her own music on hold. She was a rapper. And it wasn't the type of music that some of the management thought was appropriate. And they discovered it months later, though not a single client had complained Sometimes the receptionist gets a little too close to the athletes and ends up getting invited to parties. One even got 
flown across the country for a party. And pretty soon, uh, this person gets a lot of power in the office, and you have to worry about keeping them happy, and you're afraid to ask them to even do anything, like take phone messages. We even had a receptionist who took naps on the conference room table at lunch. I mentioned that in the novel. So overall, for Kate, Heidi seems to be working out better than expected. See, your office workplace is a great place for scenes for your novel. There's natural conflict, politics, rivalries, backstabbing, colorful co-workers who collect weird things and keep them on their desks. There's some instant details for you right there. I think this is why there are plenty of shows that take place in offices. One big dysfunctional family. So get to work writing it down. It really makes no difference what your job is. We want to hear about it because it's a world only you can tell us from your own angle. But now I want to introduce Mike Bennett, who's a fantastic podcaster, and he'll tell you about his podcast novel, Underwood and Flinch, that you can check out at underwoodandflinch.com. So goodbye for now. Hello, my name is Mike Bennett, and I've got one minute to tell you about my podcast novel, Underwood and Flinch, which is tricky because the story is really rather big, so I'll just give you the bullet points. Underwood and Flinch is a vampire novel of what I suppose in these post-Twilight days you might call the old school. Add to the mix a Spanish location, a brutal Russian mafia, and a good man trying to do the right thing in almost overwhelmingly evil circumstances, and you've got just the beginning of Underwood and Flinch. It was a finalist in the 2010 Parsec Awards for Best Long-Form Story, winner of the 2011 Polidori Award for Best Vampire Novel, and has been described by Walt Kalender of Examiner.com as one of the best podcasts ever. With nearly 40 episodes, it's epic in size, content and scope, and is a suspenseful, frightening and at times rip-roaring adventure. You can download it now from iTunes and UnderwoodandFlinch.com. Thank you. Whew, that was exciting. For more information, please go to my website, heatherstallings.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please go on iTunes and give this podcast five stars. False Alarm is available cheap on the Kindle, and Amazon sells it in paperback. Please write a review on Amazon, Smashwords, or Goodreads. Thanks again, and talk to you next week. Till soon.